Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Dulcimer Geek Podcast. I'm Dan Landrum, and with me today is Stephen Seifert. Say hello, Steve. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Dulcimer Festival of the Air, I guess. D-F-O-A. I don't know if I want to go there. Well, this is not a festival. D-F-O-A. Sounds like... Sounds like a radio station. Steve, did you know there's only, uh, did you know radio stations only have K's and W's in their names? Yeah. Well, it depends on the type of station you are. You're talking about commercial domestic stations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And do you know what, do you know what the difference is? Tell me. No, I was just wondering if you knew. It's the, I mean, I don't know where the K and the W came from, but K is west of the Mississippi and W is east of the Mississippi. Yeah, and I have a, I have my ham license is WX9DX, so I, I have a W in there. So they do that on ham radio too? Yeah, and my buddy is, um, yeah, I know people, yeah, I don't know how, I don't know the difference. I just barely passed the test, you know. Yeah, somebody write in and tell us the, the real answer to that. We, uh, you might have heard another voice in the background and that is the friend of dulcimer players everywhere and boat psalteries and just all kind of good music and just living the good life, Mr. Russell Cook of Masterworks Instruments. Say hello, Russell. Howdy, howdy, folks. Thanks for uh, having me there? on. Can you hear me? Yeah. All right. Yeah, yeah, I can hear you. Steve, can you hear him okay? I hear everybody well. I mean, we're in three different places. We've got Chattanooga. Nashville, and then uh, where are you at, Russell? Amarillo. On my Amarillo. way home from uh, Colorado by way of Lincoln, Nebraska. So wow. today is <laughs> our 13th day on this trip, and uh, I'm ready to sleep in my own bed. And that you are. <laughs> and how do you guys exactly attach the hammer dulcimer to the back of your trike? I want to see that. Oh, no, I put them inside. I've got the track for Merla to ride in. Okay, yeah. good. <laughs> you make her follow along. Uh, we were, she's the one giving you directions. Uh, she and, and, she is. She's getting real good at it. That's uh, much appreciated, too. <laughs> now, we're, we're here to talk so, about uh, hammer dulcimers and the hammer dulcimer life a little bit, right? I don't know about that, Steve. There you go. Do, I mean, when have we ever had a plan <laughs> and stuck to it? We have a we we have a little bit of a plan. Not much one. We had one last week, didn't we, Russell? Yeah, it was, yeah. It was a well, good plan. I was going to tell you. Um, I, I came up with the perfect name for this podcast, and uh, okay, it's Russell Cook Hammer Dulcimer Deja Vu. <laughs> exactly because that, we did a whole hour show <laughs> like an hour and 10 minutes and it was a good show i think it was i think we we touched on some secrets of the universe in there <laughs> uh but then we one of us <laughs> messed up but we won't say who <laughs> just blame me just blame me everybody <laughs> likes but i'm to just blame doubting me. that it's going to be the season professionals I take that's full, all i'm saying i take full blame <laughs> man i would have taken was... all the blame for that <laughs> i wouldn't either as a little <laughs> that's all right little gremlin in my room came up and turned the recorder off and i didn't know it <laughs> merla's gonna slap you <laughs> <laughs> i'm checking it every 15 seconds here <laughs> 
And hey, I'll tell you what, I asked I, I asked Russell questions last week and learned a lot from them, good. and now I have new questions. So I'm just going to abandon some of those original ones, and we'll we'll keep moving <laughs> forward. Yeah, exactly. So Russell Cook was one of the first people, you know, heavily associated with the Hammer Dulcimer world that I ever spoke to when I started playing. And it was in a telephone call. And I I remember how excited I was that Russell Cook actually answered the phone. (laughs) This was 1988, 87, 89, somewhere in there. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, at the time, I was bugging him about dampers. Even then, I mean, because as soon as I started, I realized I wanted some way to, to damp this thing. Uh, We've had many, anyway, many conversations you, you, about that same subject since, too. I know. Yeah, it's funny. You pick up an instrument and you try to look for a way to make it not be so loud. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and dampers, ladies and gentlemen. So you, when you hit the hammer dulcimer, you hear all those long ringing notes. And when you hit the damper pedal, then it... It softens the sound. It gets rid of the upper harmonics. And it shortens the sustain. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. And I was just thinking about that very thing Saturday night watching Dwayne Porterfield at the festival, at the Colorado Festival this last weekend. And he was doing a, a couple of neat sort of, uh, I don't know what you would call it, but they were faster pieces, but he was chopping it like a like a guitar uh, does sometimes but that's what he was doing with his hand was he was playing his note and then dampening it plays notes and then dampening it all the way through the song I, it was really cool i want a switchable pedal so you can have it default to yeah. either position that would be great i think that's a good idea steve i could design dampers for your instrument <laughs> <laughs> that's you know hey and this conversation will go where it goes, and this isn't where any of us uh, probably expected. But, Russell, there's a design that I saw out of Europe, and I've never heard one of the instruments. They may just be awful, and I'm not asking you to try something new. <laughs> but Thank the dampers goodness. did what Steve – yeah, I know. <laughs> but it'd, be, it'd surprise me if you didn't try it, though, because you, you try all kinds of stuff. The dampers on this one – came from under the strings as opposed to over the strings. Oh, I've thought of that many times, but in a Masterworks Instruments, I work real hard at getting the strings closer to the instrument, closer to the soundboard. It doesn't, the energy of the vibrating strings don't have to go through so much wood to get to the soundboard, so uh, it's a little more efficient in transfer of that energy. So, there's no room. I think in that instrument, it was like, Steve talks about though they they kept it really close to the soundboard and they rested against the strings way over near the side rails until you stepped on the the pedal and then it worked more like a piano yes. and that you were taking it off the opposite yes of what normally we do I don't know seems like there might be some problems with that though because it's pushing up on the strings as you're trying to pull them down onto the into the Delrin um, yeah there's all kind of issues uh, plus you're running mechanical. Uh, devices up through the body and everything that moves on that instrument makes a noise just like you know if you scratch this microphone on a uh, you hear it going through there and that's what that uh, soundboard is doing amplifying whatever energy comes into it it's not discerning anything so well, yeah gotta keep like mix mcspadden mountain dulcimers um 
Lynn McSpadden, who's no longer with us, I remember he was fairly conservative with with uh, new feature development. He said he had mm-hmm. people always coming to him with ideas, and he liked to implement one change a year and do it across all the instruments, and then everybody in the shop would kind of vote at the end of the year on if they like, thought it was a positive addition or not. I mean, you've got people giving you ideas every week, I'm sure. I just took on a new project uh, this last week with Ed Hale retiring from hammer building. And, of course, he makes some, some wonderful, very different hammers from what we build. And so uh, several performers said, you've got to build them for us. And uh, so I gave Ed a call, and we had a wonderful conversation. Uh, I love Ed, and and uh, I praise him for uh, making a decision. to. He loves to travel and is very intelligent and I'm sure he's got some projects he wants to pursue completely separate away from dulcimers, but uh, we're gonna gonna try to produce those for folks and and uh, you know completely separate. And it, we'll be sure and share the fact that they are Ed Hale's designs for sure. But uh, then we'll yeah maybe have a a version with a a little twist between the two of ours or something. Who knows? Well, how do you keep new ideas from bogging you down? You don't. It's time consuming. That's the thing about prototyping and and designing it to start with. And uh, lots of times, usually, these new ideas come come to us from a a performer and they need this and I want that. And and, uh, and then it's more of a vague idea and we're supposed to sit down and try to figure it all out. And... I've, I've realized I can't do that all by myself. I've got to get more information. So Dan Landrum is, has been extremely uh, involved with us. Annoying. The last <laughs> uh, few years on, on the, the new Dulce Forte design and and then working on dampers and miking most, more lately. And, and Dan has really um, pursued that on his own. So I'm excited to, to actually see this in person soon. And uh, Dan, just in case you didn't know, I'm planning on stopping by and visiting you in about two and a half weeks. So I'm looking forward to seeing that rig that you've come well, up with. Well, okay. <clears throat> well, let's let's just uh, let's pl- scheme on the air. You're <laughs> boy. I hate to say this because it reveals uh, a, a character flaw and a bad habit. <laughs> which which one? <laughs> both. Both. <clears throat> I am, I am, I've never, it's just like hammers. I've got a box of probably 60 or 70 pairs of hammers. And I can tell you something I dislike about every single hammer in that box. That's another thing I would love to do while I'm there. Just look at and play with all your hammers. So we'll have to schedule a couple of days probably. <laughs> <clears throat> Same thing with microphones. So I'm in the middle of a, a project that I'm super excited about. Hold on, I'm going to take a drink of water. And in this project, I'm going to be performing with a uh, cello player and a bunch of classical players. It reminds me of the intensity as far as the the work is hard for me that I experienced with all the Yanni stuff. I mean, because that was me being thrown into something I wasn't used to. Well, I'm feeling that pressure again, and I really want the hammer dulcimer to sound great because I think this cello player, Ben Van Winkle, has tremendous national potential. 
So I'm excited about this project. So I've gotten hyper-focused again on miking, Russell. Yep. <clears throat> and I did did an experiment the other day with those AT mics that I've been using, right. which are great. They're, they're a couple hundred bucks each compared to my, Steve, you'll like this, AKG 414s set up with the same setup, basically. There is just no comparison. You know, there... There are house concerts, Which way? but it, well, the, the four fourteens. I mean, are better. It's just amazing sound. Oh, it's wow. amazing. But they're what? Are, what do they cost, Steve? Twelve hundred dollars each. <laughs> well, I think it depends on which one you go with. I, I mean, I think they have some now for eight hundred. I don't know. I don't know. But anyway, it makes a yeah, difference. Yeah, I mean, but it's. It's it's huge, and I want my hammered Russell. This instrument, this Dulce Forte that you're making now, is so good. It's amazing, and I want it to sound that great live. Yes. So, <clears throat> I did. I did the science. I mean, I tested them. I recorded side by side, and even though those uh, ATs sound better than anything I've ever used, using them in. I've, and I've used them in XY pairs. I've used them in uh, separated, you know, but dealing with cancellation properly pairs. There's just the difference is is too much. It's too much. I want it to be that good. Mm-hmm. And I'm working on new music that I'm recording that I want to be able to have sound when I play it live like it sounds like on the recording because that's how you sell CDs now. You got to be somewhere playing it and let people hear it. Right. Right. And <clears throat> I've heard way more bad hammered and mountain dulcimer recordings. And I'm talking not, not the quality of the playing, but the quality of the recordings. I've heard way more bad ones than I have good ones. And I think it comes down to miking most of the time. Absolutely. So I started looking at uh, what the options are. And I just said, if money wasn't a thing, what would I do? Well, pretty quickly, I find out that money is a thing. <laughs> I, you know, what you're <clears throat> because, talking about is something yeah. that... 99.5% of the folks that might listen to this program now and in the future probably can't justify. But for that but person the who is Geek podcast. out there, you know, Ted Yoder needs to be yeah. using something like that. Joshua right, and you, like Absolutely. in Nashville, you can rent microphones, so that, that helps. But still, you're probably talking $100 a day per mic. <laughs> oh, yeah. So. <clears throat> Here's what I found, Steve. If you're in front of your computer, take a look at this. The uh, not that this is the only place you could get anything from, but but go to Sweetwater and type in DPA piano forty forty ninety nine four zero nine nine. Right now, is this what Erin Rogers uses on her dulcimer or something like it? Is Erin using one of these? Huh? Get her on the, <clears throat> get her on the line. But you're, so, <laughs> wait, you're talking about the piano one? Wait, yeah, what, the, what, how a much piano is this stereo thing? pair? They're twelve thirty nine for a stereo pair. Okay, I'm looking at it right for grand piano. Do you have some of these? No, but I was thinking about. I, I called them and talked to them, and you know, I've done this a couple of times with products. They know I buy stuff, and so. I just say, look, there's, if I don't like this, I'm sending it back. But I think I ought to try to have it on hand, Russell, when you're here so that we can compare this as well. Yeah, I'd love to hear it. 
They're small. Yeah, they're small. They have little goosenecks. They're roadworthy. The problem with, I mean, the obvious question is, well, why don't you just, if the 414s are so awesome, why don't you just take those and use those for live performance? And it has to do with the size and the fragility of them. Uh, yes, you don't want anyway. to be hooking them up and unhooking them all the time, I would assume. Although, uh, I believe you mentioned that what you'd come up with was fairly simple to remove. Yeah, and you could do the same thing with these. Good, that would work. So they're with small these enough. As well, it's just they're small enough to yeah. uh, attach them the way you, uh, the others were. Yep, almost okay. the exact same. Way. Oh, perfect. And that's a, yeah. that. Uh, what about the piano ones? <clears throat> well, that's what I'm talking about. These are the piano. No, not the four fourteens. The four fourteens are big. Oh, and. And they're relatively heavy, and if I think if I knocked a four fourteen over on stage, I would recognize that I had just destroyed twelve hundred bucks. <laughs> Probably be hard need to, to get it concentrate out. the rest of the concert. <laughs> yeah, but these are are light, and they're intended for use on the road. And it's what if you go see you know a professional piano player play on a major stage, and they're mic'd. This is probably what's in the piano. Uh, actually, there's one better. There's a Neumann pair that's about thirty eight hundred dollars. Did you say the uh, this is a pair that's twelve hundred or so? Yeah, twelve twelve thirty nine. That's more. That's reasonable for a lot of folks because, um, you know, you've got six, seven, eight thousand dollars in your professional performer instrument and all the accessories. I know. Right. So, and the whole purpose is to yeah. transfer that information, that music, accurately <clears throat> to the crowd. Yeah, uh, you know, if you're talking twelve, fifteen hundred dollars a piece, and you got to have two of them, of course, for stereo image, that that's starting to get over the over the hill there. And the thing is, we we are playing a piano. Yep. That's what these are. Uh, uh, so Steve, get this, get this. So I'm talking to the guy at Sweetwater, and I told him, you know, what my concerns always have been, and I've heard other players, you know, just phase cancellation and i'm not going to give do a lecture on phase cancellation right now but it is an issue you can make an instrument not sound good and most houses most of the pa systems where we play are mono systems and two mics can cause phase cancellation this guy said you know most professionals don't worry about that anymore because they take care of it with uh plugins to correct the phase huh what do you know about that, Steve? Well, nothing. <laughs> I mean, um, I mean, I know how to look at a like a one of those scopes that shows you if you know where you're in yeah, phase, phase and correlation. Out of phase. But um, yeah, I don't know. I don't have a clue. <clears throat> but it does stand to reason that if you have two microphones and there's a place where they were, this is super geeky, but I could see a piece of software saying, okay. When these two become phase opposite of each other, the software would then adjust the phase of one of those. Yeah, something like Keeping that. It, and these are hypercardioid, so that so I don't know. I mean, well, yeah, well, that's what he was also saying. Yeah, you get the separation. If you if you watch any videos of where they use these in the pianos, they are not being careful to set them up in an XY pair. Uh, they're generally pointing them to different places in the piano because they're so hypercardioid, which just means it's a tight pattern, you know, where it's picking up from. 
And he said they're very feedback resistance, resistant because they're intended to be used on stages where probably the piano is the only thing that isn't electric. So everything else can be really loud. You know, another thing you could do, um, like in Logic, there's a way to delay one channel by a very small amount. You could, you could play with that probably, and I'm sure there's plenty like, of ways to deal with this. So you, you still might be out of phase idea. in a different way, but maybe a, a better way. But this this is the most boring. You know, that's this an is, interesting idea. This is boring, though. This is boring me. <laughs> this is the this is the Dulcimer Geek podcast. All right, we, let's get we've back. We got Russell anyway. Cook on here. We have the Russell Cook on here. But if Russell wasn't making such an awesome instrument, that's right. <laughs> it wouldn't make me want to make it sound as good as it does. Yeah, there's a lot of times I've ended speakers. up with an excellent instrument, and I've got no real effective way to amplify it so it's i mean have you ever had an awesome instrument with a terrible pickup it's really kind of a weird idea yep we were fa- yeah all of them on hammer dulcimer <laughs> we were facing they're that not terrible they're fine 20 go ahead something go ahead, years Russell. ago and uh in the studio uh, jim moore was around i guess about that time and a little before and um there were quite a few uh contact type microphones and internal microphones acoustic type microphones on the market and someone was bragging about this one i got it you know i bought it and brought it in i had my own recording studio and i set it up and played this typical tune that i play all the the time late and uh compared to what i had been using well it's different it's not really better and what else is there so i just researched and found all of them that was that i could find and put them side by side by side, and uh, including a microphone and uh, a, a piano microphone and, and so on. Uh, and I had 13, uh, wound up eventually with 13 different contact microphones. And there was one that was, um, at that time, absolutely better than any of the rest. And that was the Shatton Design. And it had just come out. And so... Since then, I keep my ears open and, again, let you performers who are doing uh, so much uh, performing on stage to feed information back to me, hopefully. And I, I want to offer the best there is in, in our instruments. And I have yet to hear anything as a contact, internal contact microphone, anything better than the Shatton design. I'm not trying to sell it. We hardly make any money on them at all. Just I, I, I can't believe in... 15 or 20 years, there's not something that's better than than that. So I would ask the folks uh, listening, uh, man, I'm all ears. I'm always all ears for anything better, sweeter, more efficient, accurate, easier to use, and uh, and needed for performing and playing and getting getting that wonderful music you work so hard to make to the ears of the listeners. Yeah, I want people to get to experience the sound that I'm hearing yes. with my face over the instrument and knowing that you really do hear the highs more out of your left as you move up yeah. the instrument and the lows tend to resonate down out of the bottom right more. So I, I would like to take just a moment to talk about that. that that's a big deal. And I'm going to start with the biggest contest in the world for hammer dulcimers. 
maybe they've got something else for Yang Chen and, and so on and so forth, but the national contest in Winfield, Kansas, everyone needs to be mic'd exactly the same way, exactly the same distance from the instrument. And on several instances, I've tried to discuss that with the powers that be. And either it's not getting to the right person or they just forget about it because it's another year before they do it again. But every year, after year after year after year, they've got the microphone right up next to the front end rail of the instrument. I mean, within I don't like that. just a few inches. And you can hear nothing on the bottom two thirds of the instrument. You can hear it more acoustically than you can over the microphone. And then you hear it when they get to the top notes. So, uh, on that subject, I just want to share my real quick opinion on that. Uh, first of all, it ought to be two mics. One for the left side and one for the right side. So it's a big instrument. And Can I hear an amen? <laughs> and it, uh, they need to be separated. One pointed to the left side, one to the right. And even more accurately, the bottom of the instrument is the bottom right corner. As you stand in front of the dulcimer, up is not straight up. It's the upper left. So It's up and to the left. Yeah, yeah so se segregating that with two microphones... Again, the same setup, they could have the instrument located somehow or another to give a real, true, fair representation of each person's instrument, because that is a, obviously a big part of their performance. So, if there's anybody... There's, there's another way they could do it? Uh, there is, I think, uh, you know, uh, and it, along I mean, with what, I think if you had a really good mic that came from the top and pointed straight down. Yeah, yes. If you got to use a single mic, then that very same thing. Uh, I'm sure they don't want to intimidate uh, someone who's never done anything like that before. Never done that. Yeah, they're already freaking out trying to compete at the national contest. Um, right. But for those of you who do get out and perform, do not let an unknowing engineer which, who has no earthly idea how to mic a hammer dulcimer, you got to be able to, to be confident and tell them, do not put a microphone under the bottom of the instrument. Get it on top. That's what resonates. What comes uh, out of the back of the instrument as you stiffen to a great degree is the, the percussion shaft. of hitting it because it takes a big lower pitch uh, tone to make it through all that wood, the bracing in the back and make it vibrate. Some music does come out of it, but far and away more of it comes off the soundboard right into your ears as if you're standing there playing it. That's where you want the microphones, somewhere up there, and not real close, because you'll get a zonal uh, volume to those few notes real close to the microphone. So yeah, can I, I I would add to that yes. that as you get close, the angle of the microphone needs to become more steep so that you don't get that thing that Russell's talking about. Mm. And it kind it depends a little bit on the kinds of microphones that you're using. If you're using condenser mics with a big omni pattern, it doesn't matter a whole lot. If you get it too close, you get harmonic distortion regardless. So just to, that, just that's imagine just a real thing. What you would hear if you just put your ear right close to the soundboard in one place that microphone's doing the same thing there it's experiencing that same uh zonal pickup and you know if you're a hundred yards away you know it makes no difference but whenever you get within two three four five inches you're 
it's ridiculous. You just got to get that microphone up approximately where your own ears are. That's the sweet spot. Right. I've, I've got we a, could get into specific mics. Yeah, go ahead. I got a question for Russell. So I've been playing, I've been playing like a, a regular, I don't even know what it is, but a regular hammer dulcimer. I've been messing around with this linear chromatic. I've been messing around with the uh, piano dulcimer. And I'm like looking mm-hmm. on your site, uh, masterworksok.com, and I'm looking at all that you've got everything from the 1211 up to the 1616 chromatic. So I've kind of been experiencing all these different kinds of dulcimers. You know, one part of me thinks, well, just get the one with the most notes. But I know that there could be a downside to that. But for somebody like me who's got understanding of music theory and performing experience, I've just got a suspicion I don't need the biggest one with all the notes. Or is I mean, how do you how do you advise somebody on that? Would I be better off with a just a regular sixteen fifteen? And do I you know, I know how to use chromatic notes. Maybe I don't know. What do you, what are your thoughts on all this? Anytime anybody asks me what instrument they ought to buy I always tell them the most expensive instrument we build. That's, <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> no, no. Well, can I comment? Wait, uh, I, I want to hear what you have to say, Russell, but I want to take the heat off of you for being somebody who sells instruments and saying that. I would, I say almost the, and I don't, it, it kind of doesn't matter to me what instrument people buy. I say the most expensive instrument that you really can afford and that you can physically carry. Oh, and that you can and use. That you like, <laughs> and that you like the tone of. I always relate it to, and I, with Masterworks and me personally at home, I, I don't know how many computers I've bought over the last, since they came out. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, 35 years ago. And I learned real soon, buy the most biggest, fastest, uh, most memory that you can justify spending because in five years from now, it's going to be so behind the times. And in two years, if you buy a, a you know, just a small to medium sized computer, it, just like programs get bigger and bigger and faster and more need more speed as you as a player no, you don't need that instrument when you first start. You don't need that size of an instrument in one year or two years or four years. But six, seven, eight years from now, do you really, do you want to just, that's step one. Step two is, no, I'm just going to buy something that's light, portable, not too complicated. And that's what I'm going to learn and play on the next few years. And maybe make that my knockaround instrument. And then I'll buy the end all instrument that I'll play. The it's rest scary. Of my life. I mean, I know a lot about music, but it's just, it's scary. <laughs> like when I compare a chromatic to a regular, the chromatic doesn't have a ton of extra notes, right? Like, right. Uh, actually, the linear, I don't think, has near the uh, octave range of a large hammer. Right. Instrument. Well, that's what I was thinking. Uh, I don't know. I, I've been looking at these things for 25 years, you know, it's just. <laughs> Well, you're going to be, realistically, at this point, if you're not totally sold out and that's what I'm going to succeed on, I'm I'm excited about it, if if that's you, 
and and you really want to do this, then I, I say go for it. Go for that linear chromatic or the piano dulcimer. But it's going to put you right. in a completely little section of the dulcimer. Yeah, I don't like that either. You know, one of my favorite things, like think about a yo-yo festival. You know, if you show up at a yo-yo festival with a robotic yo-yo that has a computer inside, that's not nearly as relatable as a wooden yo-yo with a wooden <laughs> axle and a cotton string. I mean, I, I like in the mountain dulcimer world, I like telling somebody, hey, I don't have a one and a half fret and I like them, but you don't need them. You know, I, I like that the, the beginner has something very similar to what I have on stage. That's in the in the hammer dulcimer Steve, world, there's so much variety in the setups, but I, I realize maybe the core is, is the same. It is. And have have you been to a yo-yo festival, Steve? Well, in my heart, I have. <laughs> okay. Yo-yo con, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You're scaring me a little, Russell. You said that as if you've been to a yo-yo festival. <laughs> it's hey, the same I was kind a of deal. In high man. school. <laughs> When I was I mean, a senior in high school, all the guys were playing with yo-yos, and uh, it got a little dangerous in the hallway sometimes. But well, sure. That's funny. But think fun. about it. We no, get people cool. excited. We get people excited about the very thing they have at home, you know, their instrument. That's a big deal. That's a big right. part of this dulcimer world. Mm-hmm. I mean, even tilting my instrument up, I feel like it alienates me just a little bit from some people, you know, as opposed to having it flat in the lap. Your mountain dulcimer or your hammer dulcimer? The the mountain dulcimer. Mountain dulcimer. You angle it up. But I mean, just for the hammered world, I mean, I think if I get more into hammered, I would anticipate working with people at festivals. So that's that's one reason I don't like the linear chromatic. It just puts me off in another world, and that's fine for a hobby. But um, You know, Steve, I think about the linear chromatic because I, I have linear and piano and regular. And there are times when I need those tools for something I'm trying to do from a recording standpoint. But because I have to go and do a gig, I'm not going to take two or three different kinds of instruments because hammer dulcimers take so long to tune. So the piano dulcimer, while there are some songs that are just great to play on it, it doesn't go to gigs with me unless I'm doing one and thing that's the, That's where you figure things out. What are you willing to fly with? You know, what are you going to take mm-hmm. across town? Uh, if, what, what, you know, 80% of your music probably comes from the basics, I would think. Probably so. Yeah. The extended range uh, is a an extra tool. Uh, you know, I... Well, and uh, I want to I want to toss something in else about that. Okay, this gig that I'm working on with this cello player, he didn't intend to have a hammer dulcimer player at the beginning. He intended, you know, he's got all these classical players, and for the most part, his music is in F, E flat, and A flat. And as you know, <laughs> those are not easy keys for the hammer dulcimer, in particular when what he wants me to do is kind of groove pattern-based groove stuff that goes along with him and these quick little, uh, you know, ostinato-y kinds of r- r- runs that happen with him mm. as well. Those were the three keys? So, ha- most of them, yeah. I mean, there's one that's in C that's the, the most complicated ones in C, and I'm so thankful for that. But all that I'm needing to do on this other instrument, and I've learned some of this from working with you, Steve, is think about if you are in E flat, for instance, 
what, and, and it's using a minor scale, what minor scale is it? Well, now all of a sudden, I get to start to look at it a different way, and I'm going to have most of those notes. But all I do is go over to that extra super bass bridge on the right-hand side and change a few notes. Now all of a sudden, I have the pedal tones for E-flat, A-flat. An F. And of course, I'd be tempted to tune all those down a half step. So then you would be in D, G, and um, E. Yeah, but then that messes up all the other stuff. I guess what I'm getting at is having all those extra notes allows allows you to change a few very important notes and fit. (laughs) Yeah. And Russell, I sent you a picture too. I don't know if I ever heard back from you or maybe I didn't send it where I've determined what the notes are on the right-hand side of the bass bridge that are tunable. Oh, yes, we talked about that. Uh, and marked I did not get a picture with... that I remember getting. You, you might have seen okay. it, and I, I was gone, and I never saw it. You, you've been gone. But Yeah, I want you to see that. It's uh, Those are useful because I've got, in, in some places, like up near the C course, there's an E-flat that occurs off on the right-hand side, mm. It's an octave high, but still, it's like a nice voice. So it allows me to do some really nice C minor-y sounding things, which, again, works with these keys. Well, Russell, do you have a tuning chart on your website that matches this instrument Dan has from you? No. No, we don't have anything for the... Instead of a 1616 um, chromatic Russell Cook edition, that's the last thing that we've put on the website. Since then, we've had a partial... Uh, extended range and then a full extended range 1616 okay. but now we've transitioned to a 1717 extended range and we have one for the left side and we have it for the extended range on the right and then now okay. we of course have the 2020 with uh extended range on the left and on the right for uh for the last three or four years i in the back of my mind we've got to reduce the number of models we build we got to reduce oh, it oh yeah we've done, we've done nothing but add to it <laughs> think about these I'm restaurants thankful. with the big menus you know and sometimes yeah. people recommend get rid of some of your lot. items yeah <laughs> yeah let let the cook specialize so russell let's let's go back in time just a little bit and to when you first started building uh what kinds of things did you did you try that didn't work Oh, let me think. Uh, well, my very first one. <laughs> I thought if a little bit did a lot, a, lot, uh, a lot of good, a whole lot would do even more good, you know. And, of course, string length is a huge, big, big deal. I, I broke 32 strings before I gave up. My hands looked like I had a disease or something <laughs> where those strings were popping me. Um, and I realized that I've got to got to figure out the proper string length for this is ridiculous and the second one was wonderful what else um to be honest it's all the instruments all the things that i tried and it failed for a specific reason they were all huge learning experiences they were the best instruments i built um that's where real learning comes from and uh like uh, a more recent one uh, in prototyping the Dulce Forte just a couple, uh, three years or so ago. Uh, was was starting to get it sounding right and uh, built, I don't know, I think it was number five or six. And it sounded awesome. It sounded great from the moment it was all strung up. And I thought, 
hot dogs. We finally have arrived. That was on a Friday. And uh, I was just on cloud nine all week. And I came in Monday morning, and, and I was a little behind everybody else. They'd already arrived. Larry comes in real early sometimes. And uh, anyway, I come into the office, sit down, and start talking with Gail at the office. And about 10 minutes later, here comes Larry walking in. And he didn't say hi or bye or anything else. He said, did you tell him? And Gail said, no, I was waiting for you to tell him. And he just turned around and followed me and walked in there. And there that prototype was in the back and blown off of it completely. It wasn't oh. attached in one place. And I was trying to brace it so that the back would be active. Well, it was active. And, uh, <laughs> and I said, well, that's that. We've got to run those braces up onto the inside of the pin blocks and uh, take all the pressure off the back so that the back can react to the energy and not be under stress. I mean, boom, that was the first time I ever made one change, a big change like that, that worked perfectly and we don't do anything different now. But it really is the failures that you learn from. And, and So this is, it, it sounds like I'm... Uh queuing off of you saying seg segueing off of you saying failures and this isn't intended to be that way but <laughs> on i've had a couple two or three dulci fortes pass through my hands now and had problems on the upper left on those super high chromatics with those just those strings breaking yeah and i think for instance and here here's what russell has told me up to this point and it's worked is those were tens. They might have started as elevens and and we moved to tens and now I've moved to nines and they're completely stable. And so I guess I'm I'm saying that to say that even when, especially as you get to a short string length, when you experiment and you get it down to one that sounds right, because honestly that ten might sound just a little bit better than that nine, but when you hit it about five hundred times it breaks because it's so close to breaking. Yep. It's right and, there, 95, 98%. Yeah. And so I don't see that, you know, as a player. And I think this is one of the reasons, Steve, that Russell isn't like making these, you know, the out front instruments that he's pushing yet, too, because we're still tweaking things a bit. Don't you oh, think that's yeah. true? I, I cannot go into full production on even the 1717 is. is Anything I figure out on one model, either the 1717 or the 2020, I try to incorporate it into the opposite one. Um, I've done that too many times. Build 25 pairs of pin blocks and use two or three or four of them and come up with a great idea, and the other 22 are still sitting on a shelf somewhere. Um, what kind of time goes into making a jig for an instrument like that, a jig for a pin block, for instance? The... Um, Jig sits in a tray, and then on top of that tray, a metal template is pinned in place, removable, of course, so you can pull the pin block out. And that metal template is a copy of the finite, absolute perfect one that's never used. And we use that perfect one to make a copy because it gets worn out. You lay that on top of it, and it just free free floats around under the drill press. You just literally move it around to the hole that you want to drill, and you use that hole to drill it, uh, to design it. And it wears out every couple of years. So you go back to the original, 
instead of trying to copy that worn out one and build another one. So that's the simplest way. We've tried two or three different ways, and that seems to work the best. Uh, if, let's say you think... Is, it, it doesn't take long to take that original template or the original pattern and make a, a replacing or a replaceable uh, jig. But that... <laughs> but what I'm getting at is to make that original, though. Yes. Uh, if you make, had a... If you had a major change, design change, it's like we got to move everything a thirty second. That's why I was fixing what to say. Sort of a, we we do our best. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm just I'm not really an engineer, so I do my best, and I've had technical drawing and all that sort of thing that helps. And but the trapezoid creates strings don't go straight up and over the side rods; they angle. And on a asymmetrical, where the left side is angled a different angle as the right side, they're com both completely different from each other. So you do your best, you make a template, you build an instrument, and you see how close how close to right are you. But then usually on the next one, you redraw it, re-prepare uh, a new t template or a new jig. You usually nail it on that one because you get enough information from the first one. So it's just a one, two, sometimes a one, two, three process. But no, there's nothing about it that's two or three hours or a day. What you have, you have people working in your shop there. How much of this is you and how much of this is people that have worked for you for a while when you're, when you're making those changes? I probably figure out 98% of it um, as far as, this is wrong, what do we do to fix it? I try to figure it out and redraw it for them. Uh, I may do the initial part of it and then turn it over to them because I know they can figure that, that out from that point on. And I'm not saying they're not smart enough, but they're trying to figure out how to apply that to the building process. I'm trying to figure out how thick should it be? What angle should it be? Where should these pins actually be located? Where do we want the soundboard, uh, the sound hole to be? It's a big deal. It looks different with dampers than it does without dampers. Every little thing you change changes not everything else, but there's plenty, plenty to go around, you know? There's just... Uh, do, you, do you know if the uh, metamorphosis, I guess is the best way to call it, of what I see happening with not just yours but other... American hammer dulcimer builders and that you guys are refining your techniques. Sure. Uh, and I talk a lot about uh, the international versions of these, the Yang Chins and the Cymbalums and the Hockbrets and those kinds of things that are often large instruments, sometimes even still in rectangle boxes, you know, with sides that open up, you know, that harken back to what the original big predecessor to the piano of these instruments was. Mm -hmm. But in the United States, I think the instruments got really, they became toys a bit more, a bit more than I'm comfortable with, with some of the, some of the ones that when the hammer dulcimer started becoming popular again, they were just small, but you guys have like brought them back so that they're big and they rival the range of the international versions. But you've also cut down on the weight you know, mm -hmm. and the carrying cases are better than what I've seen. Do you know if this trend towards making them a little more svelte is happening around the world as well? I don't have much input about Yang Chins or uh, Santours 
or hackbrits or symbolums. I've never been to the World Congress of, of the Symbol World Congress, um, but I think it's primarily Yang Chin based and maybe some symbolums. Um, Those things are big. Yeah, they're huge, and a big part of their culture is tradition. Um, let me I rephrase that. Right. They're uh, musically. They want to hang on to that traditional sound. This is an acoustic folk instrument. Dan, have you ever tried to break your way into the bluegrass world? It, <laughs> it, I did get, I played at Bill's and people did not leave the jam session. And I was told that that was a victory. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would agree. Uh, did you get re-invited back to it? <laughs> Good, no. question. Good question. <laughs> That's my question. <laughs> you know they and and you know God bless them. They're trying to hang on to that bluegrass sound and not let it become bluegrass rock like country music has become country rock. And uh, right. they, they just want to hang on to their traditions. And so that's probably, uh, I think, a big part of what is has stabilized designs in other parts of the world. America, you know, just you, we're the innovators. I've heard this over and over from engineers that, you know, we figure it out here in the past anyway. We figure it out here in America, and then uh, production goes to over there, and they make them for us. They're, you know, real Russell? Good. They're real good at making things for fast. The, for the first time since playing Hammer Dulcimer, I feel like a cool kid for just a moment. <laughs> yeah, we, That's not usual. <laughs> yeah. And it's so funny, you know, the, the, the way tradition works in our little world. Um, we, I'm glad I, for every kind of person, the person who preserves, the person who's always pushing the boundaries. Um, the only thing I guess I don't like about it is when people get mean about it, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. but um mm-hmm. The older I get and the more I think about my kids and my mom and what really matters in life, I don't want to break anybody's heart, but I don't care so much about the tradition of music that I'm willing to compromise relationships with people. I just don't, I'm not the guy who cares that much. I care a lot. I probably care a lot more than some people realize, but um, when it comes to preserving tradition, I think it's important. But I've seen people get so upset about this kind of thing. They just almost get mm-hmm. hateful about it. I, I don't like mm-hmm. that. Do you is this something we shouldn't yourself, talk about? Uh, <laughs> uh, well, I'm just relating to your music, Stephen. Uh, uh, Dan, obviously, is is on the cutting edge and pushing the boundaries of where the Dulcimer's been musically. And don't you feel yourself that that's where you are with the Mountain Dulcimer? I think so. I mean, I go through phases. Like, usually about three or four weeks a year, I play Galax Noter style. And I've been doing that mm-hmm. for over 20 years. You know, mm-hmm. there, about one month a year for the last 25 years, I do chromatic. Um, some, I get fascinated with Gene Ritchie. I get f- fascinated with uh, David Schnaufer. You know, I get, I've been mm-hmm. fascinated with Don Petty and Gary Gallier, Jerry Rockwell. Yeah. Like I feel Every like one of those um, completely different. Yeah, every and one I, of those and performers I've, are completely different. I've learned from field recordings, and I, and I've improvised an entire two-hour set at some strange hippie festival. <laughs> so I, <laughs> I mean, I'm probably not real good at any of it, 
as far as being, you know, some kind of real focused expert. But for me, I love the variety this instrument you heat them gives up? us. Um, so I don't know. I, I think it depends on where I'm at, but I'm up for anything. And mm-hmm. some of the traditionalists would probably say I'm bad at all of it. That's fine. That's fine <laughs> with me. I, I really fell in love with the Hammer Dulcimer at Mountain View, Arkansas at the very first Dulcimer Festival they had in 79. And that was, we actually went back twice a year uh, for two, three, four years there in a row, three or four years in a row. And then even on up to Branson had a, had a Dulcimer contest at one time. Do you know that? Uh, huh, the, no. Uh, what do you call it? Um, what's the name of the big park at Branson? Oh, uh, Silver Dollar. Silver Dollar City, yes, yeah. Silver Dollar City, That yeah. was fun. Uh, they had a wonderful folk festival back then. But my point is, I still, uh, to this day, um, sponsor the Dulcimer Contest there at the Dulcimer Festival at Mountain View at the Folk Center, Ozark Folk yeah. Center. And every year, I, it never fails, I go back and the music, the attitude, the personality of that place where they're trying to hang on to the roots of the Ozarks uh, to... Uh, as living history for new and younger people uh, growing up and and uh, coming there to experience that for the first time. And I feel that same rooting, re-rooting of, of where I came from as a dulcimer player and where the dulcimer came from and all the players like you were talking about, Stephen. Um, it just brings that all back to me and it re-excites me. But yeah. it doesn't hinder hinder me though in in pursuing something new on the dulcimer. Right. But it's important to to. to well, in the seventies, let's say the seventies and eighties, the Ozark Folk Center. Well, let's just say the nineteen eighties, when they mm-hmm. were preserving traditional music, they were looking at stuff that was from what decade? I mean. I don't know. The f- uh, what is it? But they they've got a formula. Eighteen. Think before anything before nineteen musically before nineteen forty, and that probably has a lot to do with uh, what do you call it? Um, you know, um, the copyright. Yes, stuff. copywriting. And uh, uh, but the rest of it is in the early nineteen hundreds. There were parts of the Ozark Mountains that were just like it was back in the 1800s. And, of course, it modernized. And that's what they're trying to keep alive is how to split shingles with an axe and how to make your own candles and how to sew and how to quilt and how to uh, turn wood without a motor. Yeah, uh, You push, push a log, pull in a rope, and the, all, you know, all those types of things. So it's a... I, I strongly encourage anyone who's never been to the Ozark Folk oh, Center. Oh, it's great. Uh, do yourself a favor the, and, and make it happen. The funny thing now is David Schnaufer, this is what i become more and more aware of, the way he played and the, thing, the way he used the instrument, that's, that's going to become something that future generations should enjoy. So I yes. almost feel like yeah. I have a responsibility to pass on the tradition of the way he approached that stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. And it's. I'm trying. To... Thank you for that. Yeah. It's that's a... a great thing to recognize, Steve, because what you're doing, you're putting your spin on it as well. Everyone should. I mean, 
the the guitar players in the 1880s were modern compared to those from early 1800s and you know right. guitar when when did it when would when did it come to exist i the piano was in the 1700s guitar was in that realm there somewhere isn't wasn't it so it was new at one time completely and there was no tradition so yes it all just like hymns in church and the music that we sing in church uh all us old folks i'm in there uh turn their nose up to some of the contemporary stuff but what is traditional now was the new stuff that those old folks turned their nose up to at the time maybe i don't know and here's the thing i don't think you can shame somebody into preserving the older ways i think you need to give them an honest experience of the older ways and let them i don't know if i agree that i agree i agree because i Uh, watched somebody completely shame dan landrum one time (laughs) Um, sweetly shame him because, but I always think, you know, Dan can only do what Dan wants to do honestly. Like we don't need a fake Dan. So if there's anybody out there that wants to keep alive a certain decade of music or a certain style, we need him to do it honestly. And shaming people into that is a terrible way to make it happen. If I, if I may interject this, I just, and of course, uh, what just happened is always the most important thing in my life, I guess. I don't know. A little <laughs> weird, but just got through with the Colorado Dulcimer Festival. And it was just, I came off of that Saturday night concert. It was, I was, I haven't been that high after a, a concert in decades, not years, That's but decades. Awesome. And I didn't super prepare, but the folks just had a wonderful attitude. And as a performer, you, you, immediately either do or don't have a relationship with the crowd and i don't want to sound like i'm a highly seasoned performer but i i've been around a while and played a lot of places (laughs) but i i I, uh, offer up that i've struggled with this should i shouldn't i play it i'm going to these traditional folk music festivals and i need to play traditional folk music and i don't do it well because I don't play it often because I've got other music that I want to play so bad and right. it sounds so great on the dulcimer. And that night, uh, that afternoon before, I decided I was going to play the songs that I enjoy the most. It just sounds so good on that dulce forte with all the bass down there. And I just got up there and played the songs that I love with great emotion. That's what we want from you. <laughs> and... I, I, so I'm going to say this just to make a point about it has been the last time I had that kind of a response from a crowd was when I won the national contest. That's how. Wow. Isn't that funny? Wonderful. And and that's what they want. They want you. They want what you feel. They want you to be truly emotional. Play the songs that mean a lot to you. And the first one I played was America the Beautiful. And... There were people with tears in their eyes. I, uh, that just yeah makes me happy. Makes that's my, a great experience. It is. It is, and you don't ex- expect to get that very often. And, um, but uh, anyway, uh, you know, we need to be honest with ourselves, and and when we do, <clears throat> and pour our heart into that, 
and it just it, it goes to a whole nother level. Yeah. So Russell, that's that that thing, and I've mentioned this I know some other time on the podcast, but years ago when I was trying to figure out if I had the chops to be a jazz drummer and a seasoned old jazz piano player. <laughs> See, he gave me the best advice that I didn't understand for 20 years. He said, man, it's like you don't really have anything to say. <laughs> <laughs> and and I know what he means now in that what I was trying to do was imitate what some other people were doing. And it wasn't really what I was completely wrapped up in. You know, it's not what I am just immersed myself in all the time. Right. I wanted to do it because it was a technical challenge. And when you play a song because it moves you and you learn it and you make an arrangement, yeah. as long as you can tap it back into that bit that moved you, it will probably not always, but probably move other people. Right. Right. Uh, yeah. And if, you know, music. and if you're honest and you do it from the heart and they don't like it, at least everybody knows we all have our cards out on the table, you know, and it's, right. That's it's right. a better way right. to live. Right. And yeah. I think so. And, the, you know, the people that love playing music from 1880 to 1910, you know, on the fiddle, some specific region like Bruce Green playing Kentucky fiddle music, um, we, you know, not everybody can be that passionate about a specific genre. I'm so glad he is, you know. Right. But I right. even hear lately yes. he's been playing North Carolina tunes, so everybody watch out. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> uh, there's so much music in North Carolina and Tennessee. It's just amazing. Just amazing. It. Um, you know, if I didn't live where I did, well, and I live where I did because that's where I was born, and all my family's there. You know, I've had so many people. Why are you in southeastern Oklahoma? <laughs> But it uh, it's home. But if I wasn't, that's good. I'd love to live in Colorado, but just because it's beautiful. But I like Tennessee and North Carolina. There's just some something about that territory. The attitude, the music is a big part of it. It is beautiful, but it has a, a sweet personality. But and you have a Russell, nice lake in you your do. backyard with plenty of with a yeah, small. You got largemouth bass in there. You know, when since you were the last there and, and went fishing, Stephen, Merla caught a six-and-a-half-pound uh, bass out Really? Of and then uh, a, uh, what would he be, a cousin-in-law caught a seven-pound something. <laughs> Probably. We, we, yeah. he, he never took it wow. out of the lake, but it I've got a picture of it. It is huge. So, Russell, I know you do this for a living, but I appreciate especially the longer you get to, and when you really get to know people and not just the masterworks brand, but the, the man behind the masterworks and, and all the women and everybody behind that brand, it makes a difference. And, you know, it's, it's not just you, it's, it's Jerry Reed Smith and the Moors and Sam Rosetta and, you know, yep. the Blantons and just Chris false. I mean, I could just, I'm going to leave, if I start naming names, I'll leave people out. Yeah. Just think you guys of all make of those. Something. Yeah. Think of all those. Yeah. I, I call them artists, call us artists because we're we're creating something new. And but just think of the thousands, tens, hundreds of thousands of hours that have been spent in trying to innovate the hammer dulcimer in the last right. 20, 30, 40 That's years. I know. Well, I, I 
the one step farther is think about all the joy that's been brought to people's lives playing those instruments. I feel that so, as m- more now than ever uh, since I've been building dulcimers now for 40 years. That's I, that's a cool thing. That's that's a wonderful satisfaction, you know. Uh, everything else hurts, but that feels good. <laughs> <laughs> it does, and it hurts earlier in the evening than it used to. <laughs> oh, man. But I uh, I can't, so, can't imagine you know, having I, done I, anything I, more enjoyable for a lot of uh, yeah, well, well, it sounds like we're doing your eulogy. He's not dead yet. <laughs> no, no, I, I've had more fun the last four years than I've had in 25 or 30 years building instruments. So, Well, I look forward to seeing, seriously, how this uh, Dulce Forte line continues to progress. And I, you probably don't want to get into the mechanics of the, the financial side of your business, but I, I want to say to other players that are listening, one of the things that Russell is doing is working with with players who do this for a living, who are, I always want to add foolish enough to do this for a living uh, and, and working with us and giving us an instrument that is, can be a little more customized and that we can, you know, promote to our customers if we think it's the right thing. And so if you're interested in the Dulce Forte, uh, I'm selling them. Russell's making them. Russell has been so, open to ideas about changing the marking scheme and it's something that i've wanted to do for years and i've done for years but just by cutting out little dots and taping them but we've developed together a color marking scheme that i think is going to make a difference for a lot of players and i'm i think i'm what you would call an advanced player and i know it's making me learn things more quickly well i just just saw something fantastic from a guy by the name of jerry rhyme i think that is right has he contacted you dan no the name's familiar though what what is it he's just a wonderful uh, he's an engineer actually he just retired and he he is pumped up he's he's anxious to do something that he likes and that he wants to do so he came up with a lighting system that is computerized to help teach new songs to beginner players and oh, i love that cool. kind of stuff <laughs> Yeah, he, I, and it works. I, that's the exciting thing is he's already he's getting it nailed down already. It's going to be great for for some folks. All right, hey, you're going to get mad at me for what I'm about to do, but I'm going to put an idea out there <laughs> uh-oh, live. Uh oh, uh oh. And this is this is partially you, Seifert, because you're right. <clears throat> That's come up with a way that we can do sharping levers say, on a, at least a few notes. Say that again. I said, let's come up with a way that we can have sharping levers on at least a few notes. Just to take yes, it up I, a half I get set. that. What the notes you were talking about, instead of having to retune them, where you can just have a flip. Again, it's a mechanical device, but it can be done. I, but it'll like. I don't know if it'll have to come from the top, but it most likely because you're talking about just a half step, and if it's a short string, you're talking about such a small distance. Ooh. Um, it, so you guys hear what's happening? Hear those wheels turning? <laughs> I love it. Why? I guess I'm thinking mainly on the extra chromatics and probably on the base bridge, mm-hmm. on the super base bridge. Mm-hmm. That's what I mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that you could change those by a half. You know, they could introduce all kinds of issues. I was watching this Middle Eastern video where a guy's playing something like a hammer dulcimer, and he definitely had those levers on there. Um but who knows what kind of compromises that brings into the situation. 
Uh, it always changes. Russell can uh, solve it. It, it. it changes the tone of the instrument and lever. The most common is lever folk harps. And, uh, and you can hear a difference in tone. It doesn't sound as good when it's levered as it does when it's not. So do some but, people get a harp right. without the levers just for the tone of it? I don't know. I don't know. Hmm. I think uh, I think that the harp. I don't know. I don't know. I, I've started to say I, I would think maybe the harp is in that realm, sort of like the hammer dulcimer, where there is still the traditional, but it's being pushed and pushed uh, to be more contemporary. But I, I honestly haven't seen that. They they are making them lighter. I know someone that makes a full carbon fiber harp with nylon strings and. A lot of uh, harpists play for weddings on the beach, and it's just horrific on their instrument, uh, wooden instruments. So these carbon fiber instruments, they can go perform all afternoon and evening, come home before they get, bring the instrument in. They set it out on the front lawn and take a water hose to it and uh, then put it somewhere. So why haven't you started building with carbon fiber? It's expensive, and it... Uh, I, to be honest, I feel like I'm cheating. I, I want wood. I want to hear wood. Huh. Real, I guess I guess I'm a little little too old. Uh, I, I'm too traditional feeling, but I know what woods sound good and what woods don't. I can't believe what I see some builders using in certain places of the instrument because I know I know from personal experience it doesn't sound good. Um, uh, but uh, I'll I'll leave it at that. That I would never discourage anyone from pursuing something. But we are using carbon fiber. We're gonna we're just going to use a little of it in the braces and the long end rail to stiffen it. But you won't be able to hear it in the in the instrument. We'll be able to make those parts yeah. lighter and possibly um, more stable than just solid wood. Well, there's the there's the just tooling your shop for working with something that's that dangerous, right? Yeah, that we're part already we're already fighting exotic wood, so uh, carbon fiber is that on steroids. It's it really is dangerous stuff. Um, yeah, I talked I talked to one of your employees, and uh, this person said, well. I'd need to talk to this other person, but they're working with Rosewood right now, and I can't talk to them. <laughs> Gail can't hardly go into the workshop at all. Uh, we lost an office manager who had a sensitivity, uh, you know, uh, hypersensitivity. It wasn't just the Rosewood, but the Rosewood was the worst. And, uh, yep, that's uh, always a challenge in working with it, but we just keep refining those processes and the equipment and the, the collection, dust collection and all that. And, uh if I was in there working, I'd have a respirator on. Whenever I came home, I'd take my clothes off in the utility room from the garage, throw them in the washing machine, go take a shower. I would not go sit in a piece of furniture and and transfer that rosewood dust to it. So you, you can't just fire off like CAD drawings to some company and they ship you everything and you put it together like Legos. I absolutely guarantee you that that is possible. But, oh, but then is I'd it have to redraw it or? next. Well, no, I'd, I'm always changing, always experimenting. So oh, I'd have yeah, to, yeah. 
then do a new set of drawings and they, you know, pay $10,000 for them to figure out how to right. jig it. No, you no, know, no, nah, it'd be more than 10000 You 10, know, 000. Russell, yep. it's, it's a lot more than that. David, yes. I'm trying, yeah. was it David, was it David Wood, the guy who's making the, I can't remember his last name, who has the carbon fiber harps? I, yes. Yeah, they've believe, got to make that form, that uh, um, cast. Yeah, he told me that was 400000 Yep. Four hundred thousand dollars just to make a plastic or the, a hard shell yeah. plastic case. What? Twenty five years ago was fifteen thousand. I mean, just a that's simple. Better. <laughs> you know, it, but it's that's just a box. I mean, there's nothing to it, and it was right. It was actually half of it because you would have a hinge and it would close, and then you'd attach your hardware to it. It was going to be a real simple version. And then I looked at all the different sizes of instruments and started multiplying that times 15,000. So I got off of it real fast. Right. And there's a, there's a better economy of scale for harps than there is for hammer dulcimer. Yes, yes. Dulcimer and they're world. simpler. Mm-hmm. Yes. In ways, they're trying to pull themselves apart. Hammer dulcimer's trying to implode. But Right. But more strings and the tolerances are tighter. On a harp, they're going in a straight line through space. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no bridges. <laughs> no bridges, yeah. yeah. I feel well, like hey, I'm always to, trying to implode somehow. That's my <laughs> <laughs> Well, general. with your music, you need to explode and get it out That's there. That's right. You need to get it going. Oh. Yep. Yep, for sure. Well, I All right, well, uh, I do we, promise yeah, the we folks need to wrap out there up. that we talk about the, the Dulce Forte and the 1717XR right and all that sort of thing. There are some videos out there now from other from the performers, but uh, we've got a video coming uh, that explains how we build the instrument. Probably too much. I don't know. I, I'm really torn about that, but I, I, I do want to share it with the world. But, uh, but we've got that coming, and we've got to get a new website done and all of this information and much more and many uh, uh, videos of demonstration and such will be there so uh, be patient with us but it's coming and uh, in the meantime if you want if you got any questions for for me or for masterworks or about the instruments just email the office and we'll we'll send you we'll inundate you with information most importantly load up come see us there you go so, hey, one last thing. Mm-hmm. One last thing. These, I don't. This is like a trade secret because anybody could do this. Russell is making a stand now. That's a simple scissor stand. What is it called? A scissor stand? Is that what you call it, Russell? I call it X brace, but same thing. And a, a simple X brace stand. But he's putting two little holes in the bottom of the instruments with pegs on the edge of the X brace. That thing is so solid. I'm blown away. It is so stable and i use dampers a lot you know and play a lot and bend notes put my hands on it so it's just a very simple change uh but it's made a big difference yeah so ted yoder it's another new innovation i'll uh i'll blame ted for that he uh he uh sometimes has two hammer dulcimers on stage but uh, just one and his other instruments and he said twice in a year's time he nearly lost his instrument because he invites people to come up and try them out and you know grab a pair of hammers and uh, and yeah. uh, let them have a personal experience and he said Russell you got to come up with something I love this X-ray stand but it's it's dangerous I gotta gotta get it nailed down where you could slide wants. them off yeah 
So that's all it is. It just locks it down. Uh, it's a little aggravating to to set your instrument on it, especially the bigger instrument, the dulce forte, but you'll get used to it. And uh, it does. It locks it down, keeps the stand from collapsing, and keeps the instrument from sliding off of it. And I personally strongly recommend, instead of a an adjustable X-brace, if you don't know what you want to play how you want to play the instrument what height and angle you need adjustability but once you figure it out you need a stand that does not adjust you want something that's solid right. as few possible as few opportunities for the stand to vibrate or move or angle and a solid simple x-ray stand where the instrument sits on top of it and is locked on through the, the pegs in the back of the instrument real simple and then if you you know you decide later uh, it needs to be one inch taller you can do that you can adjust it with the the webbing um but anyway that's that's my uh yeah no that's it has sufficient adjustment on it yeah it does it's great i just think it's such a simple little change to that stand and it's made it so much better will you be recommending or advising people on other instruments they have if they want to drill the little receiver holes in the bottom on how to do that? Yeah, it's no big deal. Hammer dulcimers are usually overbuilt anyway, but uh, the back of an instrument does very little strength-wise. And, you know, you've got holes all over the instrument. It's not going to affect the tone. So it's not a big deal. I can't think of anybody's instrument I wouldn't hesitate to do that on. Yeah, it might not work on the Rosetta, on the Rosetta carbon fiber. Because nope. he has so little wood in there. Yeah. But it might. You can drill a hole in I'm carbon fiber. I'm tempted to try though. it. You can drill a hole in carbon fiber. It'll be fine. If anything I would be strength, strong yeah. enough, it would be carbon fiber. Wood, yeah. solid wood but is what it, you'd be more concerned about. On yours, though, isn't it going into the... Uh, into the rail just a little bit? Nope. I mean, so it's a... Nope, it's going up... Oh, it's not. Going up into outer space inside there. All right. Well, thanks there. I didn't know. That's... Yeah. Yep. It's a... It, all you have is the weights and the the, weight, the the instrument's actually not sitting on the peg. It's sitting on the stand just like normal. All we're doing is getting something sticking up there just a little bit into the instrument to keep it from sliding off. Yeah, I highly recommend for any Hammer Dulcimer players listening and recognize the precarious nature that your instrument's in sometimes. This is a simple fix, and they're they're lightweight enough. I mean, it it's not it has some weight to it, but it's just it's just really well made. So yeah, everything's got to have some weight. But uh, I strongly uh, suggest that a player after they get started and they start figuring things out how they want to play is to get rid of that adjustable stand. I've built many of them and I still have people huh. asking for them, but they're they're just as heavy as the hammer dulcimer and they're half they're wobbly. Half as stable as the next brace stand. Weight exactly. does not make anything strong in in woodworking and building. It's it's dimension and uh, design that, that makes it work. But, Hammer Dulcimer has just been overbuilt too long. And uh, we recorded the story that that got deleted. But uh, um, I just had an epiphany 
38, 37 years ago when I saw this older gentleman, probably my same age right now, trying to help his older wife get their 45, 50, 60 pound hammer dulcimer into the back of a car. And that's ridiculous. It does not have to be that heavy. I, I almost immediately went home and built my first lightweight hammer dulcimer. And <laughs> it's not weaker. It's, it's about getting rid of excess. It, you know, just like I need to go to the gym and get rid of excess. That that belly fat is not making <laughs> me one bit better. So we're just making good, slim, trim hammer dulcimers, and other people are too, more so all the time. Don't worry about strength. Well, keep keep innovating. You're, it's it's great. We you are appreciated. Well, I enjoy it. It's fun and always open to ideas. Thanks for always right. being nice to me, both of you, and have a have a great week. We, no, 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 no. We just tolerate you, you know, Mountain Dulcimer. I true. know, so true. I know. We tolerate your technical prowess too, Russell. <laughs> oh man, my recorder's not recording. I can't believe. Oh, no, no, it is. It is. Yeah, there you oh, go. That's good. <laughs> All right, we'll see you guys. All right, talk, talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.